the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Talk Law Radio with Todd Marquardt. Todd Marquardt, attorney at law in Texas. If you're a millionaire or a thousandaire, Talk Law Radio is now on the air. Call in with your business law question, your elder law question. Veteran aid, Medicaid, build a business to get paid. 210-308-8867. Or ask a question online at marquardlawfirm.com. That's M-A-R-Q-U-A-R-D-T, lawfirm.com. And now, it's Talk Law Radio with Todd Marquardt. Welcome to Talk Law Radio on 9.30 a.m. The Answer, Apple Podcasts, and TalkLawRadio.com. I'm Todd Marquardt. Marquardt Law Firm is sponsoring our show today, and attorneys at Marquardt Law Firm focus on business and estate law, including last wills, living trusts, tax-protected inheritance plans, new businesses, and old businesses, including corporations, contracts, LLCs, FLPs, and we can represent those who suffer from problems from lack of planning, including guardianships and probate. The State Bar of Texas is the state agency that governs attorney law licenses, and the State Bar wants attorneys to inform the public about the law. But because legal advice must be tailored to the specific circumstances of each case, and laws are ever-changing, material discussed in this program is meant for general informational purposes only, and is not to be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice. Although the information has been gathered from sources believed to be reliable, please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Before we get started talking about the law, let's begin with prayer. Dear God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all the gifts and blessings that you give to us. Please help attorney Lisa Vance and I give good information to the listeners about cohabitation, premarital and postmarital agreements, and litigation today. Help us to use the gifts and talents you have provided for the good of your people, for our own good, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now it's time to discover your legal issue blind spots by listening to me talk about the law on the radio. Today's show is about cohabitation agreements, premarital agreements, postmarital agreements, and trial court litigation. Our guest... Attorney Lisa Vance earned her bachelor's degree in English literature with honors from the University of Texas in Austin. She earned her Juris Doctor from St. Mary's University School of Law here in San Antonio, Texas. Ms. Vance has been recognized as AV preeminent peer review rated through Martindale Hubble, which is the highest possible rating. She's been named Best Litigation Attorney in the City by S.A. Scene Magazine. She's been recognized as a Texas super lawyer. And she was also recognized in 2008 and 2009 as Woman of the Year for the field of practice of family law by the National Association of Professional and Executive Women. She is the owner of Law Office of Lisa A. Vance, a professional corporation, and she is a returning guest having first appeared back in November 2019. Welcome back, Lisa. Thanks, Todd. Thanks so much for having me. Before we start talking about cohabitation and marital agreements, tell us about your law firm. What area of law do you focus on? Well, we are primarily family lawyers, but we do a lot of other work in different areas of life as well. 
some commercial litigation. I have an interest in privacy issues, so we work in that regard. Um, and we have a probate um, section where we do wills and estates. Of course, you know that anything complicated that's beyond um, uh, our skill set, we refer only to you. Thank you. How about uh, let's narrow in on on the family law section. Uh, what's unique about your philosophy there? Well, I think, Todd, that people enter into these relationships um, generally with a great deal of thought. And if those relationships end, the best that we can do is to try to make that ending as peaceful as possible. Our preference is always to try to lessen anxiety, lessen hostility, especially when there are children around. We've learned, though, that there are many, many, many times where compassion alone won't assist a family to closure. And so in instances of um, domestic violence, in instances of fraud, um, breaches of fiduciary duty, things like that, we are pretty fierce litigators. So if we can't help people to peace on a collaborative path, um, we take great joy out of courtroom battles. Yeah, that's how I know you, Lisa, as a fierce litigator. So uh, what was interesting to me is um, how you've uh, approached more uh, agreed upon divorces. Um, That's known by lawyers as collaborative law. Will you uh, describe that a little bit further? Oh, sure. It's the same philosophy as if you are business partners. And although the business ends, you don't wish to damage the collateral family or, in a business perspective, the marketplace in which you operate. So a collaborative process means that the lawyers work as partners, retaining, of course, an attorney-client privilege because not everything needs to be disclosed. But the division of the marriage becomes a becomes accomplished through a process of meetings. I prefer to work with a mental health professional um, to assist clients because there are always emotions, there are always communication breakdowns, but it requires lawyers who can work together as partners and give up power and authority in that process to a psychologist who can, whose only client is the process itself. And it can be, um, it, it can be a path to protect the children. It can be a path to look towards the children's future because the family themselves get to make decisions together that are far outside what can be, be provided for in the family code. Just as an example, an obligation to pay child support ends when the child turns 18 or graduates from high school, whichever is the later. But in the collaborative process, many, many, many times we provide for college and post-grad work um, we, we deal with issues like braces and summer camps and um, specialized um, cars and everything that you can think of that a family would have to decide together, regardless of what's in the, well, using the family code as a guide, but not limited to the family code. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, not very new, but it's still unique enough that I think our listeners uh, probably need to know that that's an option when the divorce or the separation isn't highly contentious. Right. It never works in a situation of domestic violence. We will never do that. Uh, We will never put a victim in the same room with a batterer. But if people can set aside their differences and look to their futures, it's the perfect path. Okay, so I invited you today to talk about cohabitation and marital agreements because I noticed more couples living together, unmarried, uh, which the law defines as unmarried conjugal conjugal cohabitation. 
What trends have you been noticing? Well, I think like you, more people are deciding later in life whether or not to marry. Um, the decisions that our parents made um, many years ago were based on social um, victims at the time that are no longer necessarily um, binding on our current society. People want to, people who fall in love want to have the opportunity to see if they really can live together. Um, so like you, I see that. Um, but with it come the problems that occur when that relationship um, ends. We, I have heard uh, over the years that uh, the divorce rate in the United States is about 50%. Do you still think that's the case? I think it's the rule that we still believe that it's about a 50% divorce rate. I think that as marital partners make decisions later in life, that trend goes down. But, I mean, those numbers go down, so it's not quite a 50% rate. But the offset of that is that these informal relationships those numbers increase, and that brings a whole different set of problems. And and that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, some of the time is what happens when there's a breakup and you're not married, because like you just mentioned a, a minute ago, that uh, when there's a divorce, you have the family code that has procedures and rules and regulations and laws and case law on how property gets divided, how uh, children um, should be uh, raised. So when you don't have a marriage, um, I, I guess the family code doesn't apply as much. Not as much, certainly. But there are <clears throat> statutes that define informal relationships and define the obligations of partners and property division. Okay, so we're about to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk more about um, cohabitation and the agreements. Um, reminding you, this is Talk Law Radio on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. You can listen live Saturdays at 11 o'clock in the morning, or you can listen on Apple Podcast, or you can Listen to previous shows uh, by going to my website, www.talklawradio.com. I'm here talking with attorney Lisa Vance, a family law attorney, about cohabitation and marital agreements. And if somebody wanted more information about you, Lisa, what's the best way for them to learn more information about you? So it's probably our website, Todd, which is Lisa Vance. Law.com. Okay, so stay tuned. We'll be right back. Visiting your older or disabled relatives during the holidays can be enjoyable, and it can be a wake-up call. Have you noticed piles of unopened mail, expired food in the refrigerator, or barren pantries and cabinets? Have you noticed accumulated junk around the home? Have you noticed forgetfulness? These can be signs that your loved one is slipping and needs your help. Ask your loved one if he or she has a power of attorney or a trust. Call today to schedule your no-cost legal consultation, 210-530-4278. Marquardt Law Firm. Welcome back to Talk Law Radio. I'm Todd Marquardt. With me today is Lisa Vance, an attorney, family law attorney, and we're talking about cohabitation agreements, premarital agreements, and postmarital agreements. First, we're going to define some key terms when it comes to cohabitation. Uh, that's when unmarried people in a romantic relationship uh, live with one another. Um, so the Family Code recognizes agreements that unmarried people have. Uh, Section 1.108 of the Family Code states that a promise or agreement made on consideration of marriage or non-marital conjugal cohabitation is not enforceable unless the promise or agreement 
or a memorandum of the promise or agreement is in writing and signed by the person obligated by the promise or agreement. There's also a provision under Texas Business and Commerce Code about uh, statute of frauds, which is requires certain agreements to be in writing. So, but what's interesting, Lisa, is that neither the Texas Family Code or the Texas Business and Commerce Code define the term conjugal. Uh, so what do you think that means? Well, um, that's a pretty broad question. It, uh, as you and I were just discussing during the break, it has even biblical mention. Mm-hmm. Um, these days, um, it would be a question of fact for a judge or a jury to decide. It has um, the traditional marital sort of uh, of context about relations between um, willing partners, but it also, I think, means um, um, relationships that are not bound by fiduciary duties or obligations. Um, For example, in Texas, um, we call these relationships meretricious relationships. Um, and in, I don't know if this is a good point now, Todd, to sort of talk about these different kinds of characterization. Oh, sure. Okay. So in Texas, meretricious relationships are uh, people who live together for a variety of reasons but have no desire, no intention, and understand that their relationship is not a marriage. There's no, neither party thinks that they're married, neither party um, considers the other a spouse, but they have their own personal reasons for wanting to live together. Mm -hmm. So in an instance where both parties break up, sometimes the courts have to figure out how do we divide property that might be acquired by these people during the course of their relationship. And whereas you and I are accustomed to terms like community property and separate property, in a meretricious relationship, a court is going to look at how the property was acquired, um, whether or not there was labor involved in the acquisition of the property or in its growth, and then divides that property somewhat like you would in a business relationship between partners splitting up a partnership. So this is like boyfriend and girlfriend move in together or they buy a house together. Right. Exactly right. And so <laughs> you said that their property could be divided like like a partnership. How does that look? Well, you follow the path of the money first. We always follow the money. In addition to the money, if there is time, toil, and effort that can be valued and has enhanced the value of the object, uh, in this case the house, um, then that is associated with an economic um, recovery. But you would handle it no different than if you were dividing um, office equipment or um, chairs. It things in a, in a relationship where neither party has a fiduciary duty to the other. That doesn't mean you can treat each other badly, mm-hmm. because laws like fraud um, and issues that would be um, indicative of bad behavior would still apply. But the traditional concepts of marriage where you do have um, statutory and common law obligations to your partner, that that body of law does not apply to the division of property accumulated in a meritorious relationship. So this is like buyer beware. (laughs) It is. Yeah, it's like going into this. If you're going to acquire property, you really need to think through what does this mean? Who's going to pay 
for what? How do we do maintenance on this property? What part of it do we own? It would be like um, in a lot of these, we look at a partition suit to divide the interest. Um, and you have to consider not just the money, but everything else that went into a business or property to figure out how to divide it. Like sweat equity, I guess. Right, or goodwill. Right, okay. And what about if um, boyfriend and girlfriend um, move in together and um, they get married, but um, one of the spouses uh, accidentally forgot to get divorced? What is that? Well, you know, it's funny because you would think, jeepers, I would know when I got divorced. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times, people in casual first marriages um, will rely upon a former spouse to just go file the divorce decree. And we've had many cases where um, five years in, with children and investments made, one person realizes, holy cow, the divorce decree was never signed. So that is called, under the law, a putative relationship. And that's one where at least one of the parties um, enters into a marriage. And it doesn't have to be a formal ceremony. It can be an informal marriage. But one of the, at least one, and in many times it's both, enter into a marital relationship without realizing that that is an invalid relationship. So what happens then is that if the, the party that believes that he or she is in a marriage is entitled to all the benefits of the marriage, so property acquired from the point of the starting of the marriage um, is divided as if it community property, if it qualify, if it would qualify mm-hmm. as community property, and um, a spouse who enters, who's a putative spouse, is entitled to um, spousal maintenance, temporary support during the pendency of a divorce and spousal maintenance, assuming that all the qualifying elements are met, just as if it was a valid um, marriage. And then once the impediment is Resolved, for example, in the first marriage, the divorce decree is entered. Well, then bingo, you have a valid marriage anyway. So this might come up if the the first marriage that that's, or at least that relationship is is the parties have definitely separated, and 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 so this is coming up when there's a second breakup, and. The one party says, well, actually, we're not married because I'm still married to the other person. That's when this might come up. It might come up under that under that back scenario. And, and you mentioned yeah. informal marriage. Uh, we should talk about that because I hear a lot of myths. Uh, people say, think that they're informally married just because they've been living together for like seven years. So uh, let's set the record straight on that. What are what are some other factors that courts look at when they say you're you've informally married and and not from a ceremony? That's a really good point, Todd. Because lots of people think that they're that they are married and only just only to find out that they're not. Um, and this is what we used to call a common-law marriage. And an informal marriage requires that the parties actually agree to be married, that they live together as married people, and that they represent to others that they are actually married. So if you break that down, what does it mean to agree to be married? How do you determine... Because you don't, in these kinds of relationships, necessarily say to each other one day, let's agree to be married. And so what the courts look at is, how did you hold yourself out? If you were introducing this person, your partner, did did you introduce your partner as your spouse? And if your spouse doesn't say, wait a minute, I love you, but we're not really married, 
then the silence of that spouse is evidence that you were married. Um, if you buy property together and you claim that you're married, if you put your partner down as your spouse in a health insurance benefit, or you file taxes together, or in any contract for any provider, you list the other person as your spouse, well, that kind of evidence is all gathered in trying to determine whether there is a legitimate marriage or not. So if somebody's saying, uh, you dragged me into divorce court, but we're not really married, then the other person would bring this evidence and say, well, actually, I thought we were. Right, and, and then you have the question of, do you have a putative marriage or an informal marriage? And really, um, there's a lot of fact-specific evidence that gets in front of a court, and a judge or jury has to decide whether or not these people are actually married. Okay, Um, that's a good place for us to stop. We're going to take another break. When we come back, we'll talk about premarital agreements and postmarital agreements and the litigation over them. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Talk Law Radio. I'm Todd Marquardt. With me is family law attorney Lisa Vance. We're talking about cohabitation agreements, premarital agreements, postmarital agreements, and litigation over them. And we just finished talking about informal marriage, which is a marriage that wasn't done in front of a a priest or a public official where you just agree to be married, and what happens when there's a breakup and a property division and family law court. Now, Lisa, I'd like to ask you just for uh, a general definition of what is a prenuptial or premarital agreement? Well, that's a really good question because it is not necessarily defined to one topic. Um, a premarital agreement is a document that parties sign entering into a marriage where each party has a reason to define what their assets will look like during the marriage. Um, It's a binding contract. It has to be very carefully written. Um, It has to be um, um, written in the native tongue, the native language of the people signing it. It has to specifically set out the what the party is giving is giving up. It has to specifically set out existing assets um, that will be retained as separate property. But it's a very it's a pretty complex document because if you're if you ever rely upon that in the in the case of a divorce or or if there's a death in the estate wants to try to attack what it claims is separate property for the heirs, it has to be very clearly spelled out as obligation of the parties in the marriage. That's a great definition. Uh, when I was doing research on this, because this this is your primary area of law, but it, it's not mine, so I, I was looking into this, and I, I learned about Kenny Rogers, the, the famous country western music star, you you might remember there when he he was a serial uh, marriage type of guy. He had been married, I think, four times, and one of his divorces was um, got the record of the the largest divorce settlement of all time. Do you remember that? No, I don't. <laughs> well, what was remarkable about his life is. You know, as time went on, he became more and more successful. And so he didn't really ever do a premarital agreement. And it made me think that um, people today, 
you know, might learn from that. And even though you don't have any money now, you could still do a premarital agreement just in case you become successful and you don't want, you know, your assets to um, be divided unfairly in your mind. Anyway, I just wanted to bring up Kenny Rogers because people probably know who he is. Yeah, absolutely. Some other reasons I found that people do premarital agreements is because they don't necessarily want their business, their lives, all of their private information uh, dragged out through contentious litigation in family law court. So maybe doing a premarital agreement and, and agreeing to some things ahead of time uh, will make that less contentious and and less of a a long process. Do you think that's the case? It could be. Um, they are, if they're done correctly, they are encouraged for exactly that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, it they're not the. It, it's not like a lot of contracts where you have a plethora of defenses to them. Um, the Upholding a premarital agreement is generally what courts are going to favor doing if you if it gets to that point. But I want to say one other thing, if you don't mind, Todd. Sure. Um, you know whether or not to enter into a premarital agreement is um, such a personal decision. Um, a lot of people, and maybe this is Kenny Rogers. Um, would enter into marriage thinking this is for life and I'm not, I don't need this document. Um, My spouse will be my spouse forever. And if I didn't trust my spouse, I wouldn't be marrying this person. Mm -hmm. Um, But some of the the reasons that we've seen for premarital agreements have been where people marry late in life. Each side has children. Each side of the marriage want to have a relationship with the other's children, but want to make it clear that they're not trying to take away the children's inheritance. And so um, those are often written with um, estate lawyers um, as well as family lawyers so that the estate lawyers can participate in what the terms would be to protect the estate of each party, and then the, the marrying couple may want to be able to disclose that premarital agreement to the children so that there's no impediment in their children loving the new spouse. Yeah, that makes everybody feel better. It does. It makes everybody feel better. So there could be there are lots and lots of reasons to do this. What are some unusual provisions that you've seen in premarital agreements? Um, that's such a good question. I have a few. Maybe that'll trigger something in your memory. Um, okay. Something about um, religious upbringing of the children. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, they, they shall go to um, some type of religious school. Um, I read about um, what happens if the other person... Uh, cheats and commits adultery. What what happens if there's a breakup because of that? Um, well, if I can address that issue first, because adultery is a factor that's taken into consideration by court in dividing the property anyway. Um, if one spouse is unfaithful to the other and therapy can't reconcile um, that relationship, if that's the reason for a divorce, there's a line of cases called Murph. It starts with Murph versus Murph that stands for the reasons that you would give a disproportionate share of community property, and adultery is the number one reason on that list. Oh, okay. Um, so if you... I would wonder, frankly, um, why one person is insisting or once an adultery provision in a premarital agreement. I would want that person to sort to think through with family and friends if you're questioning whether the other side is going to be 
faithful to you, um, are you really ready for this marriage? That's a and, good question. Yeah. Yeah, because there have been times where we've turned those down, saying, I'm not going to be a part of this. Um, there are times, um, I've had an instance where I had um, one partner who was so terrified of the potential adultery on the other um, that this, that the the other spouse entered into a post-marital agreement, essentially giving the wife 100% of the community property and 80% of all future earnings if he cheated on her. Wow. Um, yeah, and so in that instance, my thought was, you guys really need to get through why the wife is having such fear. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if the husband is convinced he's never going to leave her and he wants to do this as a benefit to her to show her this is part of my good faith, um, what else is he going to have to do? Because if this is not enough, to satisfy your fear, then I'm not. I may not be the right person. You may totally and completely need to be in therapy together. Yeah, <laughs> I was just gonna say maybe you don't need a lawyer. Maybe you need a therapist. Right, that's exactly right. But and that if we can switch over to post-marital agreement, sure. Um, you know, a lot of times. Um, there'll be a, a breakdown of trust, or a lot of times some person will have made a mistake, either financially or in the marital relationship, but they don't really want to be divorced, and they want the opportunity to see if therapy can work. And so we've used the concepts of the premarital agreement are the same for a postmarital agreement. They have to be in a native language. They have to be full and informative and clauses with big black letters and underlining and all of that. Each side has to have independent counsel um, to um, advise each party as to that person's rights. But sometimes we will put in language in a temporary, I mean, in a post-marital agreement that would be the same that we would use in temporary orders. And then they can, they, those post-marital agreements can be the basis of temporary orders if the parties really get divorced. So it would set out property division, it would set out clauses for support, um, if there is a disparity in earnings, um, things like that. Okay. Well, that's a, a novel approach. Uh, I think you're on the cutting edge there. I haven't heard of that before. Well, you, I don't think that these issues should be cookie cutter. I think every family is different. Every family is unique. Um, every child is unique. Um, I would love it if if we had a system where a judge would not have to depend on um, the cookie-cutter support or um, parenting time that's in the family law code. I think in our family, for example, each member of the family has unique personalities and unique needs. Um, and one of the one of those that happens is in say um, children with special needs. Um, okay, let let me stop you right there because it's time for us to take a break. Uh, okay. When, when we return, we'll talk about uh, special needs um, children that that need extra uh, resources. Uh, you're listening to Talk Law Radio on 9:30 a.m. The Answer, and we'll take a short break. 
Visiting your older or disabled relatives during the holidays can be enjoyable, and it can be a wake-up call. Have you noticed piles of unopened mail, expired food in the refrigerator, or barren pantries and cabinets? Have you noticed accumulated junk around the home? Have you noticed forgetfulness? These can be signs that your loved one is slipping and needs your help. Ask your loved one if he or she has a power of attorney or a trust. Call today to schedule your no-cost legal consultation, 210-530-4278. Marquardt Law Firm. Welcome back to Talk Law Radio. I'm Todd Marquardt here with attorney Lisa Vance talking about cohabitation agreements, premarital agreements, postmarital agreements, and litigation about them. Before the break, Ms. Vance uh, brought up the issue of special needs of children. When have you seen that? Um, in consideration of how to support this child, if a child is um, disabled or uh, and has lifetime disabilities, um, or if something happens to a child and the child becomes disabled, um, what does a family do to be able to take care of that child for the rest of his or her lifetime? And so we would look to you, as an example, to write a special needs trust for those children. So maybe it would be a good idea, if you don't mind, Todd, explaining what those are, okay. how they're written, and what their purpose is. Yeah, the, the special needs, also known as supplemental needs trusts, can be as established by the parents for the benefit of the child, where you name a trustee, somebody to manage the assets and funds, and to make decisions about when the children would need something for um, education or entertainment or enriching their lives, um, but allowing traditional uh, methods of support to uh, pay first. And sometimes these uh, trusts are funded by um, during life uh, from the, the funds of the parents, and sometimes they're funded upon the death of a parent through life insurance or as the beneficiary of a retirement plan. So I think that that's a good thing to bring, bring up. A lot of times I, I've heard that... A, even after a divorce, uh, a parent will uh, retain the obligation of support even after age 18 if they're disabled, right? That's true. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. And one of the issues that we deal with is if a parent who has been had the sole responsibility to manage that trust is actually removing some of the proceeds for his or her own usage, then it becomes um, quite the controversy to try mm -hmm. to change that designation of who's in charge. Yeah, then it might be good to uh, get a professional fiduciary like a bank involved. That's right. Okay. That's exactly right. Well, let's go back to uh, what happens in litigation. When have courts found marital agreements to be unenforceable? You know, that's a really good question, and it happens all the time. Um, most of these agreements will say that there is no community property acquired during the lifetime, and each uh, during the marriage, and each person's um, property will be characterized only as their separate property. And there, nothing that is done will um, set up a community estate. So if that's the situation, um, those are pretty serious potential deprivations of a property right in the event of marriage failure. Um, so the court has to look at what, how do I know that you entered into this premarital agreement understanding exactly what would happen? Because unlike, as we talked about before, um, things of, of duress, conflicts, whether or not it's against public policy, things like that are not going to be sufficient to set, a, to set them aside. 
They can, however, be set aside um, if the party who's resisting the enforcement of the agreement can prove that that person didn't sign the agreement voluntarily or that the agreement is substantially unconscionable and the complaining party didn't have a fair and reasonable disclosure of property and financial obligations from the other side, didn't waive that, and did not and could not have had adequate knowledge of the other party's property and financial obligations. So let me give you an example of what that would look like. Okay. What the courts will litigate what, what what does the word voluntary mean? If you're going to say, I didn't sign the agreement voluntarily, but the agreement has their signature on it, mm-hmm. how, do I, how do I determine whether you signed it voluntarily at the time it was written or whether you didn't? So some of the things that have happened in our practice is, um, and I've, made reference to this by talking about the agreement having to be in a native tongue, we've had marriages of Americans to Eastern European partners or to Asian partners or to partners from any other country in the world. And when that happens, this agreement must not be in English. And typically, somebody entering into a marriage can carry on a conversation um, with with someone from another country, and the other person says, I can totally understand you, I love you, I want to spend my life with you, and they can communicate like as if there was no lack of fluency in the English language. But it becomes problematic with legal documents because conversationally, conversational English is much, much, much different from legal terms like community or separate property. Mm-hmm. So if you don't, if you're signing a document and it's not in the language that you were, your language from birth, then there's case law that says that that may not be a voluntary signature on your part. Um, if you don't have legal counsel who speaks your language with you at the time to explain the document that's been translated into your native tongue, that can be a claim that can support a claim of lack of voluntary of voluntary action on your part. It has to be the word voluntary generally is construed to mean an action that's taken intentionally or by the exercise of free will. So if you don't have a lawyer, if there are misrepresentations made in just procuring the agreement, mm-hmm. if the amount of information's not there, if there's information that's been withheld, or fraud, or similar conduct, or in, in, in instances of extreme duress, that would be defenses to the voluntary part of the requirement of signing this agreement. So if that some, make sense? Yeah, so if somebody really wants to have a, a marital agreement and they want it to hold water, they want it to stand up in court, then they should probably do some things to make sure that it's enforceable and it's not something that you want to be cheap on because it's going to cost extra money to to have this document uh, written in the native language of both parties. It's going to cost extra money to have somebody uh, be an interpreter um, at the uh, legal signing, and it's going to cost extra money to have for for both parties to have independent attorneys representing them. Right. But think about what happens if you have to litigate it. Not only are the drafters of the documents, the lawyers who write these agreements, not only are they going to be witnesses, but every person that you just outlined is a witness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they need to so, know that ahead of time. <laughs> they do. They do. And sometimes people um, will disclose things and they'll say, I have accounts at 
Chase Bank, Flux Bank, Wells Fargo. But they don't give you the account number. They don't tell you how much is in it. They don't tell you if there are other signers with, who have the right to affect change in the amount of money in those in those accounts. Mm-hmm. They don't tell you if they're for businesses. They just say, I have, I have a savings account and a checking account. That's all I have. Well, that's not... That's not sufficient. Yeah, if if one party's going to give up the right to assets, they have to know what they're giving up. You're, you just hit the nail on the head. Exactly correct. Exactly. Okay, so um, both parties have to have their own attorney as a general rule. Um, yes. Have you seen parties try and get around that somehow yeah i have and and it's not necessarily always malicious but i've had an instance where um the high earner um had the lawyer that he normally relies upon draft a document and then they just got another lawyer in that law firm to represent the wife well that that didn't fly that's not an independent relationship Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've had that. I've had unintentional non-disclosures. I've had intentional non-disclosures. Has um, the same effect, uh, the other party not knowing. Right, and not having, uh, you know, a, a good um, a, a good opportunity to have adequate knowledge of the other party's property and financial obligations. There's you know, one- for example... If you if 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 you enter into a relationship and the other person doesn't disclose uh, an IRS lien of three million dollars, for example, that would attach to community earnings, you're going to think, "Holy cow! Maybe I don't want to do this. Maybe I want to structure this relationship if I want to continue it in some other form or fashion." But you can set um, if that's fraud then that agreement's not going to apply. Okay. Well, this has been a very interesting show for me, and I'm sure for the listeners as well. Thank you for joining us. Uh, That's all the time we have for today. So if you want more information about uh, marital agreements, premarital, postmarital, or cohabitation, uh, you can... Uh, find more information at www.lisavancelaw.com or uh, contact your favorite attorney or listen to this podcast at talklawradio.com. We'll see you next time. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.